0: Why we turn from our idols, we turn from ourselves, we turn from the things that, the trinkets of this world that cause us to lose sight of them, that will rust and go away and burn. We turn from those things. All right, as you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, First Corinthians 15, what does it look like when a church <clears throat> looks in the mirror and finds that they have serious problems? I'm not talking about sometimes the minor things that become major things in churches like the color of carpet or... Uh, How long the sermons are, the temperature of the room, or what songs we sing or don't sing, or other preferential choices, but like really major stuff. Open, unrepentant, unconfessed, unconfronted sin. Open discord and division. Open acts of slander and gossip. Verbal assaults. What does a church do when their public expression of being a church is in direct contradiction to the actual identity and mission of the church? This was the Corinthian church, and the solution that we've seen throughout this letter has been the gospel, their need of the gospel to more and more saturate more and more of their lives as individuals, as families, and as a corporate body. They needed to experience more of the fullness of their life in Christ that we get through his gospel. Paul is ending this letter by summing that up and including a warning as he kicks off uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Father, we are grateful for your gospel. We are thankful that you decided to redeem humanity. You decided to redeem creation. You didn't leave us in our lostness, but you came after us. And your saving of us is full and complete and lacking in nothing. But Father, we know that our experience as individuals and families in a church is sometimes lacking, not because of you, but because of sin. And because of our enemy. And so in whatever way we are lacking the full expression, the full experience of being the people of Christ, we pray you would come today and remedy it through the gospel of Jesus once again. You would bring life. You would bring conviction. You would bring hope. You would bring joy all through Jesus. Make it happen here. Make it happen all over this city as the gospel is being proclaimed in local congregations. For the glory of God alone, we pray in your name. Amen. Last week, our focus was on this uh, next section uh, of this chapter where Paul lays out what was of first importance, the gospel. And we saw Paul give us the essence of the gospel beginning in verse 3. He says, "...I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received: that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And we saw the essence of the gospel was and is the person and work of Jesus. Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, buried and physically bodily raised from the dead, and appearing to all these eyewitnesses who could give testimony then and have given testimony to us now, through the written word of God that this actually happened. We saw Him with our own eyes. For the Corinthians, you don't believe me, go and ask these people. For us, it's been recorded in the Scriptures as the best possible explanation for what happened in the first century. These details that uh, uh, were included throughout the rest of the chapter that Paul is dealing, we find out that Paul is dealing with this other question or other issue that's being raised in this church, that there are some in the Corinthian church, who didn't believe people could be raised from the dead. And Paul will lay out what we lose as Christians if we can't be raised from the dead. Because if we can't be raised, if the dead can't be raised, and Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then this is what we don't get. And all of chapter 15 is this glorious accounting of what we do get because of the resurrection of Christ. Because we can be raised. And this is what we're going to experience. And so we're going to spend two weeks, the next two weeks after today, walking through these glorious truths and realities that the resurrection of Jesus is made possible. Like, you should come back. It's going to be good. But Paul opens this chapter with this reminder of how this gospel has impacted these believers. And he's very specific on how they've encountered this gospel. Paul says in verse 1 and 2, I preach it to you, you received it, You are standing in the gospel. It is saving you, assuming you are holding fast to the word that he preached. Now, the gospel begins in our lives with someone preaching the gospel to us. And of course, sometimes we are the ones preaching the gospel to somebody else. Like no one is saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the primary way this is transmitted is from person to person, proclamation of these gospel truths. So it could be you in a one-on-one conversation. It could be a setting like this where one person is speaking to multiple people. It could be through uh, TV or radio or, or internet transmissions of the gospel being proclaimed to people that the speaker doesn't know. It could be someone writing a book. Where the gospel is being written down and someone else reading it. However it takes place, it's person to person. Where it's one-on-one or one-to-many, it's person to person. This is how the gospel goes forward. It's not God sending everyone emails apart from people. It's not God writing it in the sky. Apart from people proclaiming the message, it is people speaking, people writing, people proclaiming the gospel from person to person or groups of people. And a person has to preach and share the gospel; it's required. So the hearer will potentially receive, embrace, and make it their own belief and truth. So speaking of Jesus, John writes in John chapter one, verse eleven through thirteen: He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born from above. Born again is what we describe that as. Jesus is welcomed in my life and fully embraced by those who hear, believe, receive. The King of the universe has moved in. And I, not uh, 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 acting uh, in a way that, that I'm, I'm being forced upon me, but I am fully embracing him. Yes, I see I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus alone fits the bill to be my savior, my king. I'm embracing him with open arms. He's mine. This is receiving Jesus. It's not like receiving or getting a pet gerbil or hamster or kitten Receiving Jesus and embracing Jesus and seeing Him move into your life isn't like getting a cute little pet that stays behind glass or in a cage and you take Him out to show Him to your friends and when you're done, you put Him back in that safe place. Like this is a safe place for you to take out Jesus and talk about how much you love Him, how important He is because everyone here is doing that, but around coworkers or in my neighborhood or in my family or or in other places, it's not safe, so I, I don't really bring Him out that much to let other people see Him. That's not receiving Jesus. Receiving Jesus will be more like an adult male lion moving into your house. A Kodiak grizzly bear moving into your house. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. We're going to have to adjust our lives to him. He's the king of the universe. He's moving into your home. He's moving into your life. He's moving into your neighborhood. He's moving into your job, into your marriage, into your parenting. He's moving in and he's doing whatever he wants to do because he's the king. We have to bow before Him. We have to uh, rearrange our lives. He's the one who has sacrificed His life and went through total shame, humiliation, and judgment, and experiencing the wrath of God. So we wouldn't. He's the one who crushed sin, Satan, and death. He's the object of worship for all of creation. As Susan was beginning to uh, preparing to meet Christ, the Christ figure Aslan in *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, she asked Mister Beaver, "Oh." a lion? I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe, this Aslan character? I shall feel nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver replied, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's a king, I tell you. You see, when we hear the gospel and receive the gospel, the king of the universe moves into our lives and our homes and neighborhood, and he's taking over and changing everything, and we become this this people who are standing in the gospel, Paul says. That's describing us. This is more than just mental assent or intellectual acknowledgement. This is more than just saying something is true. Remember when we walked through the gospel of Mark, we discovered that the only group of beings who consistently and accurately could identify who Jesus was and what He was there for were the demons. Not His followers, not the religious leaders, not any other group of people consistently got it right other than the demons. This was demonic faith that James would talk about in James chapter 1. They knew better than anyone who He was and why He had come. They would pass all the theological tests. But they were not or never would be a group of beings who could be described as standing in the gospel. But we are, as the church, a group of people who orient our entire lives around this gospel that we have received, in which we stand, and by which we hold fast to. Notice the ongoing active engagement of our lives with this gospel. Nowhere is Paul painting the picture anywhere in the New Testament that the gospel is something to embrace once and never again, or to embrace when life is difficult and hard, but when life is good and easy, we don't really need the gospel. Or to keep safely tucked away in a decorative box on our dresser so that when I get old and life is coming to a close, I can pull it out and be assured of entrance into heaven. But until then, and other than that, it doesn't really impact how I live day to day. This is not language you will find anywhere in the New Testament about being a people who are changed by the gospel. None of those are viable options anywhere in the New Testament about how we could possibly treat King Jesus. It's not open to us. Unless, Paul says, the end of chapter 2, or verse 2 rather, you have believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain, then all of those options are open to you. Vain means emptiness, pointless, of no effect. Apparently, Paul had some concerns that this may have been true of some in the Corinthian church. In the same way, we should be concerned that this isn't us and others that we love. In a culture where probably north of 98% of people profess to be Christians, it is very possible to have believed the gospel but to have believed in vain. For the belief and the embrace of Christ to ultimately be of no value. It could be demonic faith, like the demons experience, where they could pass a theological test, but they certainly weren't followers of Jesus. It could be self-deception that Matthew 7 talks about. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, talking about judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A group of people so self-deceived, they had been doing all of these miracles and experiencing miracles done in, the, in their view, the name of Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you're, you're not doing that for me. I never knew you. You're doing that for other reasons. It could be the temporary embrace of the gospel that over time proves to just have been a temporary embrace of the gospel, but over time there's no gospel fruit and no genuine gospel life. So this is the parable of the soils. You know the parable in Matthew uh, 13 and Mark chapter 4, a farmer's scattering seed. And Jesus doesn't leave the parable as a mystery. He explains exactly what each uh, symbol in the parable is representing. So a farmer's scattering the seed, that's the word of God, on soil. And there's four types of soil that representative of four types of people. Four types of receptions to this word of God. And the, and the first soil, our person, is a person who's so hard-hearted that the seed never even penetrates the soil. It just bounces off like concrete. The second person, our type of soil, was the, the shallow soil, where the rocks were very close to the surface. And so the seed was received, the Word of God was received into the soil, and plant material foliage began to spring up. But because it was shallow, when the sun that Jesus identified as persecution comes... It cooks the plant because the roots aren't deep enough to provide nourishment. And so this is the type of person who for a time appears to have received the word of God, but when the cost is counted, they're out. It's going to cost me that? I'm not doing that. There appears to be life for a time, but then there's no genuine life because there's no genuine fruit. The third type of soil is the person or the the, the soil that's weedy. And Jesus identified the weeds as the cares and concerns of this life. And so this person receives the word of God, the gospel. They appear to believe for a time because there's foliage springing up. But over time, the cares and concerns of this life choke out the life of the plant. No fruit is born, thus revealing there was no genuine reception of the word. And then the fourth type of soil is the fertile soil. where The seed is received and the roots go deep. And it's it's healthy and viable, and fruit is born 30, 60, 100-fold. And this is the person who has genuine life in Christ. Of the four types of soil, only one is representative of genuine gospel life, but three of the four appear to be alive in the short term until enough time passes for the genuineness of the fruit to be revealed, or the lack of genuineness. Two of the four soils, the shallow and the weedy, could be those that Paul says in 1 Corinthians were we're not standing, we're not holding fast, who in fact did believe and fame. And church people sometimes get nervous when you go through these biblical passages. Which again is why we like preaching through books of the Bible because we can't skip the difficult stuff. We have to deal with it. So are you trying to tell me that my eternal security is dependent upon my works? No, no. We're not saying that. We're not saying that at all. We are saved by grace through faith It is not of works. There's no aspect of our salvation for which we can take credit for, for which we are responsible for. We are saved and held by Christ. I imagine that when this letter was received in Corinth, there was maybe some soul-searching and nervousness by the Corinthians. Paul would later write to the the same church in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves? Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? These passages, and there are more throughout the New Testament, are given to us by God to help our faith persevere, to never have us assume our faith or take our faith in Christ for granted. When you realize and understand our depravity and our sinfulness, our attitude should never be, well, of course I'm a Christian. But always, like Paul later in this passage, it's only by his grace. It's the only explanation. I'm not going to talk more about how I'm holding on to Jesus. I'm going to talk more about how he's holding on to me. Because he saved me and he's keeping me. Because I'm a sinner still sinning. And continually, you could take snapshots of my life and be like, is he really a Christian? But but I'm not evaluating and God's not evaluating me by the snapshots of my life he's evaluating us by what he sees and how he sees us and he sees us as a finished product he sees us fully redeemed fully sanctified fully transformed to the image of Christ he sees us in the robes of righteousness that we get because of Christ our response to these kinds of passages Should never be, let me go back and make a list of all the things that I've done to prove my salvation. Look at how many Sundays I've shown up in a place like this to worship Jesus. Look at how much money I've given. Look at all the people I've invited to my home with hospitality. I was even part of a crazy church plant in Monroe for a few years. Bonus points. No, our response when confronted with these passages is, look at what Christ has done to save me. Look at who Christ is. Look at who, who, at who He is making me by His work and by His actions. And today, right now, I'm still believing and still receiving and still standing in Him and holding fast to Him because of His grace, because of His gospel. This is how I know I'm a Christian, not because of the condition of my heart when I was eight, but the condition of my heart today. Today, I'm turning from my sins and I'm trusting in Jesus today. That is assurance of salvation. Paul would say in Galatians one11 through twelve, "For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me by that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is His work, His gospel." Now that word gospel in the Greek, euangelion, literally means good news. And it had a meaning in the Greek culture that helps us grasp even more what it means to us. When the armies of the Grecian people were off fighting, like you saw in the movie 300, where you had this famous 300 Greek soldiers who were holding off the Persian army at Thermopylae, the Grecian people would be waiting back in their homes and their cities. And the only way they would know if the army had won and if they continue, could continue to be free to live their lives as they've lived them, or, or if the army had been defeated and they would need to flee or prepare to be invaded and enslaved, if not killed, the only way they would know was when a messenger from the army showed up. He would be sent back to the city or the town or the village to her- herald or proclaim good news, evangelion, or bad news, run. Now just take a moment and imagine you're waiting, your husband, your son, your brother, your father, your neighbors all fighting to protect your way of life and days or weeks would pass and life as you know it is hanging in the balance. There's no technology to give you any clue as to how things are going. You're cooking, you're cleaning, you're working, you're sleeping, you're wondering day by day, just waiting. And then one day this messenger runs into the town Maybe like the messenger from the Battle of Marathon who ran the 26.2 miles, yelled out, Nike, victory, and dropped dead. Didn't even get a sticker for his Prius. A messenger arrives and begins to go throughout the city yelling, and Euangelion, good news, good news. The battle's been fought. The ones fighting in the, for your freedom, the, the battles for your freedom from slavery, your freedom from death, your continued life, have been victorious. No reason to worry. But live. You are free. Can you imagine that good news spreading from person to person throughout those towns, throughout those those villages and cities? Just imagine the emotions. Imagine how you would feel to hear this good news. Someone fighting on your behalf has won. You are free. And then hopefully over the next days or weeks, these conquering heroes would come home and the gratitude and devotion and love and the way they would even worship these guys, of course, can... Can you imagine? And so so when Jesus took that word from that culture, when Paul took that word from that culture and filled the New Testament with it as the gospel, the good news of the ultimate conquering warrior, winning the ultimate victory over the ultimate foe, we can begin to imagine what it was like to receive and believe and embrace and stand in and hold fast to this good news and have this overwhelming desire to run and share it with as many as possible and to live out of gratitude and honor to the one who fought the battle and won it for us and there's no concept concept in our mind where we would take this conquering hero who won the ultimate battle and say well he's not really important in all of life he's important sometimes we just kind of keep him over here where he's safe we'd have no frame of reference for that we would give our lives in devotion to this conquering king we have this overwhelming desire to share this good news with as many as possible. Like, don't we love to do that? We love to share good news. A new restaurant's in town. They have this incredible dish. I'm told that at, at walk-ons there's this Krispy Kreme bread pudding. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I've got to go find out. And if it's good, I'll be telling you about it. If it's not, I won't. New series coming to Netflix, or a new season of a series that we love. So-and-so's through with their cancer treatments, and it looks good, sharing the good news like crazy. So-and-so is expecting. This is good news, unless they have two or three kids already, then we're like, they're expecting again. <laughs> like we love to share good news, and there is no better news than who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It is the best. It's good news to us for a lot of reasons, but for two realities that we see Paul having experienced in his own life, beginning in verse 9. Paul says, For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me whether then it was I or they so we preach and so you believed it is good news it is the best news because the gospel is God's grace to the undeserving sinner and the gospel is God's power to transform who we are and what we do so first God's grace to the undeserving sinner Paul sees clearly how there was nothing in him that was deserving or in any way have earned God's grace despite all the zeal Accomplishments as a Pharisee of Pharisees and esteemed leader in the Jewish culture, he was in direct opposition to God, a true enemy of the church and God's people, persecuting, imprisoning, and overseeing their deaths. And we hear stories like Paul's dramatic conversion of or other people who who know uh, who we know that we consider more lost or more sinful or further from the reach of God's grace than us. And sometimes we might fall into the temptation to think that because our story is not like that story, salvation for us wasn't as miraculous as it was for them. Sometimes we can be more like, well, of course I'm a Christian. My parents were Christians. They took me to church. I heard the gospel 10,000 times by the time I was 10 years old. For us, it can be more assumed than amazement because of our story. Instead of, I am amazed that he would save me. I read about a pastor who, as he got older, he got more and more sick of being around church people. So self-righteous, so smug, so condescending, so, so much looking down on other people. And so this pastor rearranged his ministry so he would spend more time with homeless people, people in prison, those in poverty. And to his amazement, he discovered These people were just as smug and self-righteous as the church people. It was never their fault. They were better than most people. Nobody really understood them. I'm really the good guy. The other guy is the bad guy. Then he began to counsel people who were codependent, had bad self-images, figuring that they were so broken, at least they wouldn't be self-righteous. At least they wouldn't look down on others because they hate themselves so much and have these low self-images. And what he discovered was that they were just as self-righteous in their unworthiness. They gossiped, they were bitter, they felt morally superior to people who weren't as broken as they were, or as complicated as they were, or as sensitive to the broken as they were. And this pastor's conclusion was, everybody's the same. We all think we're pretty good compared to other people. We all feel feel morally superior to others. It's really the other guy who's sinful. I'm the good guy. And the clear, resounding message of the Bible is there are none who are righteous. No, not one. We have all gone astray. All we have earned and deserve is God's wrath and condemnation. And we are all in desperate need of salvation. In fact, one of the great evidences that you have genuinely received the gospel, that you are standing in the gospel, that you're holding fast to the gospel and have not believed in vain, is your ability to honestly truly say in the deepest part of your being with Paul, it's only by His grace. I am what I am. He has changed me to the core of my being like no one else. I only deserve death and wrath, but He saved me, and I can't point to one single thing other than His grace. I was sharing with uh, uh, some guys in DNA Wednesday night about a seminary professor I had who asked us one time in class, he did this long lecture on salvation, the redemption that Christ has provided, and he simply asked us, why are you saved? And so we began to give these reasons. Well, I went to a revival meeting or you know, camp. My parents took me to church, and he's like, no, 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 you're telling me how you're saved. I want to know why you and not others. Why did he come after you? And, you know, we're sitting there just bewildered trying to come up with answers. And he knew the only answer we could ever come to is, I don't know. It's only by his grace. I don't know why I'm not lost. It's only by his grace that he came after me and effectually saved me and transformed me. That's the only answer. And what this does is create this incredible desire to love and worship and to be devoted to the one who would willingly, lovingly lay down his life for you so you could be saved and live. This is why it's good news. He has won. We are alive. We are free. Now go and tell others. Enjoy the freedom that he's purchased for you. The battle is over. It's good news because we are experiencing God's grace to undeserved sinners. It's also good news because we see in the gospel God's power to transform who we are and what we do. Paul speaks to his identity. By God's grace, I am who I am. And he speaks to what he did, his mission in life. And there's a lot implied there. He did not go into details. He does that in other places. But he says, I worked harder than all of them, but it was only by his grace. In whatever way Paul saw his efforts as an apostle to be working harder than them, could be the other apostles, He quickly brought even his efforts to be a product of God's grace and not in any way an opportunity to give Paul the glory. To take the greatest enemy of the early church and make him the greatest missionary and writer of half the books of the New Testament is one of the great testimonies to the power of the gospel to radically transform our lives. And this has always been God's desire, to so transform the lives of His people that we stick out, that we are distinct that we live differently than our cultures. Going all the way back to the Old Testament laws given by God to His people for a variety of reasons, but one of the primary reasons was to make His people distinct in the land that they were living. In the promised land of the Old Testament, this means they uh, they didn't sacrifice their kids to pagan idols. They didn't make idols or images to represent the one true God and worship those idols or images. They didn't throw the widow, the orphan, the stranger in the land to the scrap people of society, but actually had laws in place to care for the widows, the orphans, and the strangers in the land. Read the book of Ruth. In the first century, God's people were distinct and saw the Roman Empire transformed through their transformed lives in three distinct ways, according to Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity. Number one, when epidemics of sickness infiltrated Onto cities, and people began to flee the cities because they didn't want to die. The Christians stayed in the cities and ministered to the sick, even as it killed them. Number two, when Christians were persecuted by the governing authorities, they didn't respond in terrorism or guerrilla warfare or violent retaliation, but they died praying for their enemies to be forgiven. And number three, at the height of the Roman Empire, you had this time called Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, so that within the Roman Empire, there were no boundaries or borders between neighboring countries. It was just one empire. And everyone was free to go and and, and be in other places as they chose. Everyone was a part of the Roman Empire, which meant for the first time in any empire, you had a mingling of ethnicities and races of people like never before, and it was causing great tension and difficulties. And it was the church who was the first to say, we have a solution. How was that possible to live such radically transformed lives that an entire culture would be overtaken by this movement called Christianity? It was because of the gospel. Christians would stay in the cities and minister to the sick because they weren't afraid of dying. They know that through death it gets even better for us. Christians were able to die for their faith praying for their enemies because they knew that they served a just God who would one day make all things right and we didn't have to take matters into our own hands and balance the scales of justice for God. He did it. And they served a God who was making a new people of all peoples, languages, tribes, and tongues that was creating creating a bond in Christ deeper and stronger than any way the world wants to divide us. Paul is ending this letter to the Corinthians by focusing on the gospel because he knows it is the solution for all the things that that illed and ailed this this struggling church. The Corinthians needed the gospel to more and more saturate them and change them so they could more and more experience this life that Christ came and lived and died and rose to give us. Like we could go, and we have, you can go back and listen to them, issue by issue through this entire letter, the problem centered around sex in chapters 5-6. through Food in chapters 8 through 10. The problems in their worship gathering in chapters 11 through 14. Um, one example, the problem of unity in factions in chapters 1 through 4. Certain groups are showing loyalty to certain leaders like Peter, Paul, and Apollos and talking bad about the other groups. And Paul responds with this gospel truth that we are a community of people centered around one leader, Jesus. And we do such a great job of making so much of Jesus that all the other preferences and distinctions between the other, other leaders just melt away. Amen. So you may be a Piper guy more than a plant guy or a Keller lady more than a, a, a Chandler person. You may have those preferences, but they don't really matter because we're all serving and following King Jesus. Amen. That's right. And if we can live out that kind of unity and not division, that is evidence that the gospel is is changing us. And so one of the God-glorifying ways we can worship Jesus is by being a people that give testimony and witness to the reality of a gospel-transformed life. Even better, when others in our life can give evidence of a gospel-transformed life they see in us. Like if I asked you, name some tangible ways the good news of Jesus has changed and is changing you, what would you say? What would be on your list? How would your spouse, or your kids, or your closest friends or classmates or coworkers answer that question about you? How has the grace of God's gospel changed your identity, changed your mission? is changing your mission? Like if you kick that question around this week in your mission communities, our DNA groups, what would you say about yourself? If you went to people who are closest to you and, and said, where do you see evidence that the gospel is changing me? What would they say? How has the good news of Jesus changed us as a church in the last four years? Changed our identity and our mission? How is our city and our neighborhoods and places we work and go to school and eat and play and shop more changed by the gospel because we've been God's people on God's mission for the last four and a half years? How are we living out gospel-changed lives in such a distinct way? Our culture could look at us and say, those people are different, and that's good. If that's what God's people look like, I'm glad they're here We need more of them. Really think about this question. Because if you're like me, personally, in our church, as I think about our church, there are ways we could definitely give witness and bear testimony. This is how God's been gracious. This is how God has changed us in tangible ways. And this transformation creates worship and gratitude in me. And then there are ways I want to repent as a husband and as a father and as a pastor. And I want to run back to Jesus again. And that's who we are. A people consumed with the good news of Jesus. Being changed by Jesus in all of life. And the hope of the gospel is in whatever way you need him today, he is here. In whatever way you need Him this week, He will be there. Through His Word, through His Spirit, through His people. He's not left us alone. He is going to come and provide everything you need to experience the fullness of what life in Him looks like. Father, I am grateful that that is true. I'm thankful that you haven't left us on our own to figure this out. I'm thankful that we are not saved by grace, but we now have to work a life enslaved to the law. We are saved by grace, kept by grace, persevered by grace. I'm thankful that that is what now motivates our worship and our mission. And so I pray that would be true of everyone in this room. And I also pray that if there would be anyone here who has so far in their life believed in vain, that today they would embrace Jesus because they see how much He has embraced them, a sinner who needs a Savior. And that people in our life who have believed in vain would hear and see the gospel through our words and through our life, and that they would turn from their sins and embrace Jesus, because they see how much He has done to embrace them. And that as we go into our life, Father, we would be this people, completely transformed in identity and mission, distinct to make a difference, and to see God glorified by His gospel-changing lives, person by person. Thank you that that is who you have made us and that is who you are making us. And help us to now sing and give and go and love and serve in response. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.